what Bonnie and I do, eight years ago we came, we planted a church here in State College. It was called Discovery Road Church and it in its existence. Uh, uh, it's doing good and uh, people are being ministered there. But in March we let that church go and gave it to a guy named Scott Letty who uh, I've been with since he was 13 years old. Uh, he came here with his wife. They grew a family while they were in the church and now they pastor that church themselves. And Bonnie and I started the ministry called the Mercy Tree. And, and a synops- a short synopsis, what we do is we, we preach, teach, build, and serve all at the same time. So we try to find places that are small, vibrant ministries that need help. How many of you have ever been to a place where you just thought, man, if I just had just a little bit of help, I could get to where I need to go? Have you ever experienced that? Right? So what we do is we find places like that. So we don't look for big places, prominent places. You know, there's ministries out there to do that. But what we do is say, hey, we will come for free wherever you are, even somewhere on the other side of the world. We'll pay our own way and we'll come and serve you there and we'll do whatever you ask us to do, which could be preaching and teaching and ministry that way or working with our hands. We build homes. We work with orphanages. We do that kind of stuff. And then we come alongside people who just need encouraged. How many of you need encouraged? Right? Man, I do all the time. So when you're out there and you're serving in ministry, and most of you here, a lot of you are in ministry, you know, sometimes you can go weeks, months, and not have someone come up and really just pour their life into you and encourage you, you know, and just give themselves to you. And so that's kind of what we do. And I'm hoping this morning to do that with you even through this message. And I just want to say what an honor it is to be here. I consider it an honor to be able to kick off the City Church Sermon Series this morning and um, and be able to maybe inspire us to see what God wants to do as a whole, not just individually, but in a unified front, building and creating momentum for God's kingdom to really begin to manifest itself here in this city and in your neighborhoods and even in your own homes and even in your own lives. And uh, the topic of this message, you can see there, it's called The Church Next Door. And the primary pre- premise and focus of this message is, is, is the work of evangelism. That's one of my primary gifts. I'm an, I'm an evangelist. I love to tell people about Jesus. I love to share the gospel everywhere I go. Uh, I've been threatened, almost beat up. People throw th- had thrown things at me. I mean, you name it, I've had it happen. Recently, I was preaching in London, and I was standing on a ladder in the middle of what's called Hyde Park, and there were hundreds and hundreds, probably a thousand people around and uh, listening to different preachers. And when I got up on the ladder, immediately five mockers began to just torment me the whole time I was preaching, tearing up my manhood, mocking Jesus, you know, and I can just say that not everyone's cut out to do that. Can you say amen? Right? But unfortunately, that's one of my gifts. But uh, this, this, this morning, I, I want to share with you uh, my heart on on how to reach people through the local church, and uh, this idea of the church next door is what is the role of the body of believers? You know, how how do we provide a clear message through our words and our actions that create an opportunity actually for the gospel? Because see, the the the, the church next door it, it's it's not a place, but it's it's a people who are in love with Jesus. The church next door, it's, it's being a representative of Christ. It's a living, breathing organism that thrives in pleasing God. 
It's this idea that we've been called to love because Christ has died for us, just like the songs that we've already sung this morning. It's the joy of being planted strategically in our city and in our neighborhoods with the full intentions of revealing God to those around us. That's what it means to be the church next door. And our plan through these messages is hopefully to build momentum in your heart and to bring an opportunity for each of you to have what we call a gospel encounter with someone and be able to share the message of Christ. And now along with these messages, you're going to get resources and there's going to be events over the next months that we'll be joining together, you know, corporately as, as a single church and universally as the church whole in State College. And, um, and our hope is that that will keep you on track. It'll keep you focused. How many of you know you only retain about 15% about what someone hears? Right? About 15%. If you're good. So I'm looking at five for me. You know, but we'll, we'll just say if you get five, hopefully it'll be the five you need and it'll remind you next week, hey, it's the church next door and be the church next door. Amen? So this morning what I want to talk about is what does it mean to be a praying church? What does it mean to be a praying church? Every move of God, every revival, every renewal has been birthed in dependency of prayer. Every single time. You look through church history, you look through the Bible, Men and women are crying out to God on behalf of those who don't know Jesus. And I suggest that even one day when we see the beginning from the end, we'll realize that prayer was the same thing that moved one heart as it was to move one city. And I think that's important for us to understand this morning as we consider what it means for you to be a part of a uh, mo- uh, momentum that is created through people who understand how to pray. So if you have your Bible this morning, we're going to look at a few scriptures. You have a handout. Uh, you can see the reference on there. But I want to share with you this morning the, the potentials and the struggles that we might have in experiencing what I call evangelistic prayer. An evangelistic thru- thrust through our prayers. And the first place I want to turn to is Luke Chapter 10, 1 and 2, and I'll read that for you quickly. It says this, After this the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore pray earnestly for the Lord, or to the Lord of the harvest, to send out labors into the harvest. Now, If you're a Bible person and you've read the Bible, you understand that these were words that Jesus said ahead of something that he wanted people to do. He was sending them into cities and into communities. And he's saying, look, what I want you to do is I want you to go in there and I want you to be Jesus with skin on. Do you understand that? What that looks like, what that feels like, right? Go in, love, serve. If someone's sick, pray for them. If they need healed, trust that God will use you for healing, right? And be what you're supposed to be in that community and stay there until you see something happen. Stay there and wait for me because he actually says that in the scripture. He says, listen, pray for the laborers so they can go ahead of me. I'm sending you 72 to go ahead. But every time you pray, what you do is you provide an atmosphere and an opportunity for my presence to be there. So that when I come, maybe there will hear the message that I have through the spirit in their hearts, just like you and I have. How many of you received Jesus through this ministry? 
How many of you received Jesus through this ministry? Right? If you have, let me share with you. What if this place wasn't here? What if, what if you weren't here as a church? What about the hundreds and even thousands of college students to get reached through some of your ministries? What if you weren't there? What if you weren't the church next door? Where would they be? I think Jesus is very serious when he talks about needing laborers for the field. Don't you agree this morning? I think that he's seriously trying to convict our hearts this morning that we need to be serious about what it means to be a laborer. And when I hear Jesus reading this, I I can just almost hear Jesus saying, hey, I'm sending you to be the church next door. I want you to be the church next door. And yet I'm challenged by the statement of what it means to be a worker this morning. What, what, does, a, what does a worker look like? And, and, and how come Jesus is saying there's not enough and there's few? Now, if, if you understand that, then you understand this, that even in our city, less than 10% of people go to church regularly on a Sunday morning. And out of that 10%, how many of you think are actually passionately following Jesus and trying to build the kingdom of God at the same time? I'd say we're a rare breed, if you ask me. I would say people who are tenaciously trying to find Christ in the midst of every circumstance and live out a passionate God life for people to see and realize that this life isn't about us, but it's about Him, that there is a tangible conviction that comes to each of our hearts and our minds that we know that we've been called to be laborers, that we've been called to do a kind of work that will change people's lives but at the same time we have to realize if only 10 percent are going and only maybe let's say half of them maybe are even really tenaciously trying to follow christ with their whole heart and be that maybe what jesus was saying here is something a little bit broader than just go and be a worker maybe there is a core conviction even in these few verses that we need to hear And I think that we need to understand that God in His wisdom understands where we are. He knows whether we're real workers or not. He knows whether we're really part of the harvest seasons or not. He knows whether we are powerless really in our walk with God and we need something else. And He also knows what a real responsibility looks like for someone who says that they're a worker. I believe that the most challenging part of being a worker in the harvest is prayer. I think it's the most difficult part of our relationship consistently to have as a person who's been following Jesus for 24 years now. But I want to show you something here. The word work in this verse here uniquely doesn't mean just go in the city and be busy. It actually, the root word means toil. It means to toil. It means to be a toiler. Someone who toils is, it, it means a struggle, a battle. But an extended definition, it means this, long, strenuous, fatiguing battle. That's what this word means. So when Jesus said, I want you to go and be who you need to be and be a worker, he wasn't saying like, hey, you know, just go and be busy every once in a while. You know, Take your neighbor's cookies. If you do that, hey, that's good. No, he's saying that if you're going to be a worker, 
for the harvest, it's going to be a battle. It's going to be strenuous. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be challenging. And I can tell you that people who really follow Jesus, we don't have any problem following Christ in the flesh. We don't have a problem doing things for God. That's not our struggle. I think our struggle, corporately, if we're honest, is our devotion to prayer so that God can manifest His presence in a more powerful and intimate way in the midst of our work. We work too much and we don't pray enough. Let's just be honest. We work too much and we don't pray enough. And I think that when you script, you look at Scripture as a whole, you understand that to toil, to struggle, to battle is a challenge that we all have to face here in this life as followers of Jesus. Let me say this. Maybe what Jesus was implying was this. The gospel, this gospel that we're talking about, this harvest, maybe it's not going to be as easy as just having a sickle in your hand on a warm sunny day cutting wheat down that's crying to be cut. Maybe it's going to be a whole lot more difficult than that. Maybe it's going to be a whole lot more challenging than low-lying fruit that someone offers you or those moments or times where someone comes banging on your office door or your house and says, please, could, you, could I come in and would you tell me about Jesus? How many of you have had a lot of those experiences since you've been following God? I don't think that Jesus intended it that way. I think what Jesus intended for us to get out there, be workers in the vineyard, be workers where we're at, serve God with our whole heart passionately, and pray, pray, and pray. Demographics say that most people are still open to a gospel conversation. Did you know that? Most people, if you've provided the right atmosphere, they'll listen to you talk about Jesus. You don't have to worry about standing on a ladder and someone threatening your manhood or your womanhood. There's lots of opportunities everywhere we go to hear that happen. Yet, when we look at our faith, many would have to say that that's not really a vibrant aspect of my relationship with God. There's not a lot going on when it comes to that. I'm good at talking to people who know Jesus. I'm good at helping people who know Jesus. But when it comes to helping the world, I'm not doing that great of a job. Well, let me tell you, get in line with all of us. We all have that challenge. And Jesus knew that when he was making these statements. And I I just want to share with you quickly a story from the beginning of my life that really, I think, typifies what happens with people who begin to have God moving in their life. I was less than a year old in the Lord. I'd hardly knew the Bible at all, but I was asked to take care of a youth group and I started preaching to four kids. And within five months, hundreds of kids, teenagers, started coming to the basement of the church. They were traveling 60 miles. I didn't even know where they came from. They just poured in week after week after week to hear the story of Jesus. It was amazing. I can't explain it. I can't really you know, try to define why it happened and how it happened. It was just one of them things where God just decided to do this incredible work. And week after week... Dozens of kids would come who I'd never seen, who weren't even from our city, and they would give their life to Jesus because it was the only message I knew. Jesus saves. I could preach on, you know, 
being married and somehow it would come to Jesus say it. I could preach on how God will, you know, do something crazy in your life, but in the end it would always come back to Jesus saves. And kids would get saved right and left. And a few months into that revival, I was at my home and I can still see myself in the living room and I began to pray. And the reason I was praying is because the weight and the burden and the responsibility, I could feel it on me. It was so heavy. And I didn't know what to do and I didn't know how to do things. I, I didn't even know how, how to preach really. And um, I began to press in as hard as I could. You know, just pressing and pressing and, and trying to pray. And after about 30 minutes, I just felt so overwhelmed. And I had this thought, man, this is hard. This is really hard. And I'll be honest with you, I shrunk back. And I never got back to praying like that. And within months, within nine months, that revival died. Now, there's more to the story, but I think you get my point, don't you? Whenever God starts doing something or He wants to do something, He needs people who can hang in there, who can fight the fight, who can pray the prayers, who can take the responsibility of what it means to carry people in your heart, carry a church in your heart, carry a city in your heart. And I know that Jesus is wanting to do that incredibly in our lives. Now, here's the thing I want to share with you. No matter... Your experience in this, how many of you have had trouble praying in your life? Not just me, right? How many of you have had trouble sticking with it for 30 minutes, right? Even when the burden was heavy and you knew you should and the next thing you know, your mind's running off and you're just like, oh, Jesus, take care of it, right? You prayed that take care of it prayer and then you get on doing the work of the worker instead of the praying of the worker. But I think that God knows this in our life. And I believe there's a truth that we need to consider this morning, and it's this. We may start alone, but God's plan is for us to be together on this. I really genuinely believe that. There was a guy, his name was Jeremiah Lanfear. And in 1857, he was working in New York City as a missionary, and he was going house to house trying to preach the gospel to people. And he got to the point where he was so burnt out and so overwhelmed that he was ready to give up because people weren't wanting to listen to the message. And he was frustrated. And in his frustration, he printed 20,000 flyers and he handed them all over New York City by himself, everywhere. And it was a simple invitation for men to come to pray at a church every day at 12 o'clock. And the first day that he went there, he went up into this, up in this room above the church and he was there by himself and he was praying and he was praying and no one was coming and suddenly he heard footsteps and six men showed up that day to pray with him. And as they began to pray, more and more men came. And before you knew it, a massive revival had broken out in New York City, which they say, historic, historical uh, men say was part of over a million people coming to Christ through one man who was so tired of trying to do the work in the vineyard without praying and when he finally realized what he needed to do was cry out to God, men gathered around him and the next thing you know, thousands of people were praying all over the city and men would come in off the street and they would give their life to Christ. I think when Jesus said, pray for the laborers, he may have meant this. 
I think he may have thought, you know, you can work in the flesh, but you've got to do this in the spirit and you've got to pray. And I think that if you'll do that, that you'll realize something. You're not meant to do this all alone. You're meant to have a relationship with Jesus that starts in prayer, but then if you want the synergy that you need in the momentum, then you realize you're in this together and suddenly God begins to unite our hearts and the next thing you know, we're providing encouragement and spiritual energy that is there to provide when the battles are raging in people's souls and in this city. I also believe it reveals our our own personal weakness that we have to go with other people and we need others to help us. We realize we can't get it done by ourselves. We realize that eventually God calls one, then he calls two, and then he calls a dozen, then he calls hundreds and even thousands. And as we begin to pray, then suddenly God reveals his power and his power begins to manifest itself in the beautiful message of Jesus, our gospel, our story, the longing of our heart. Acts 1.14 says this, it says, All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Another version says this, They all met together and were constantly in prayer. Now, constantly in prayer means that every time they got together, they were praying. Every time they got together, there was a devotion to prayer. See, this decision to pray came because before Jesus' ascension, He told them, He said, Listen, I'm going away. Get together. Stay there. Wait for Me. Don't do anything until I send the Spirit of God. And when I send the Spirit of God, what will happen is, is you and I will labor together. He's saying, Don't labor without Me and don't labor without each other. Do it together. Don't do it alone. When I hear the statement, I, I, I just hear, you know, the church next door. I have the sense of like, you know, the church next door. Not one person, but a church. Working together in Christ to see His kingdom come. Now, do you know that only 11% of the world are extroverts? Did you know that? Right? You couldn't have any more than that because we'd just be in fistfights all the time. Right? It's just true. Right? So 11% of the world is extroverted and most of people who are evangelistic are usually extroverted. Not all, but the majority of them are extroverted because extroverts are outgoing. They like people. They want to be around people. They want to annoy people. They want to be obnoxious towards people. That makes a good evangelist. But what about the rest of us? What do we do? How do we work in this? How do we flow in this? How how do we categorize ourselves in the heart of what Jesus was saying here? He's saying this. Pray together. Pray together. And I'll use you. Pray together. And I'll use you to save money. You don't have to do it by yourself. You don't have to get up on a ladder. Pray together. I'll make a way for your kingdom. Now, here's something that I want to tell you. In case you didn't know this. God's God's really smart. 
He's, he's really smart. He realizes that it takes just as many people laboring together in prayer to save one, your neighbor, as it does to save the many, your neighborhood. He knows. He knows we, a lot of times, don't have the moxie to do it on our own. But he also knows that he's created the body of Christ to work together in unity, to believe and to be broken in our hearts together for people who need us. Let me share some exciting news to bring this home to you this morning. See, people were praying earnestly on the day of Pentecost when God infused them with power. And as they poured out into the streets, there before them was their their neighbors and their friends and, and, and the whole world all at the same time. God had poised these praying folks to set a template for us to follow. And Peter began to preach about this Jesus and people were cut in the quick and they were cut in their heart and others were finding relief from their sorrows and many for the first time were sensing God doing something about that hunger that they had in their heart to know God yet they felt like they were so far away from them. Their souls were being touched that day. Let me read you what transpired in Acts 37 through 47. It says this. It says, Now when they heard, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? He said, And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God has called to Himself, everyone in my neighborhood, everyone in the city of State College, everyone in Pennsylvania, everyone in the world. And when many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourself from this crooked generation. So those who received this word were baptized and they were added that day. And 3,000 souls came into the kingdom of God. And then he says, And then they devoted themselves to apostles' teaching and fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayers. And it says this, And all came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. It says, And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any need. And day by day attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what happened that day? Can you imagine the joy that must have exploded in the hearts of the disciples on that day and in the days to follow? Can you imagine that there they were waiting and suddenly God began to breathe on people because they were there unified, crying out to God, seeking God for the half of the world and those they loved? Could you see the tears that probably were running down the faces of the disciples and then their neighbors and they looked at each other and they knew they had met Jesus and, and their hearts were overwhelmed with joy and there was a warmth and excitement because that had happened? I've been leading people to Jesus for 24 years and I'm telling you, 
I never get tired of seeing someone come to the Lord. Ever. I never take it for granted. Not once. Not when the other people say, well, we'll see what happens. We'll see if they really meant it. Or those who are full of cynicism because they look at someone's sin and the ridiculous way they live their life and then they think, well, I don't know if God could save them. Yeah, He can. And He does. And He will. It makes you want to pray. It makes you want to believe. It makes you driven to live outside of the realm of the familiarities that you used to try to have a relationship with God and even with people. It drives you to your knees and it tells you that you can't do this without Him. That you've got to have His grace, His Spirit, His power, His life, His love flowing in your life. You can imagine suddenly little churches everywhere, the neighbors across the street, the church across the street, everywhere. Because people were believing in what Jesus was doing. I think there's a defining thought that we can find in these stories and in these verses. And it's that unified and individual prayer brings God's presence and power for the gospel. They didn't just pray. They prayed and they preached. They prayed and they told. They prayed and they loved. They prayed and they gave their possessions. They prayed and they did everything that God had told them to do. And suddenly there was this incredible synergy that led people to Jesus. Just like in Acts, we need to be the church next door. And I want to finish with this just a couple of minutes and tell you this story about Bonnie and I. When we got here, we knew no one. We did our church, what we call a cold start. We didn't take 60 people with us. It was just her and I and two or four, four other people that we came here. And we just began to believe that God was going to do something. And you know, when you're an extrovert and an evangelist, you get pretty annoyed when you never get to see your neighbors. They don't come out of the house, you know. They leave at 9, come back in at 5. They're never outside. And I was saying that, you know, I knew I needed to do something. And so I decided I was going to start praying. And so every day I would go on a prayer walk. And I would just pray my whole neighborhood day after day because there was no one to talk to about Jesus. And a little bit later, our neighbor directly across the street, she came out and she said, you know, hey, how are you? And we started to have a conversation. We told her why we were there. And, and then, you know, a little bit later... She began to, you know, just ask us some questions and we started to have a few God conversations. And one day she came over and she said, you know, is there any chance that I could spend some time with you and Bonnie and you could teach us about, teach me about God? And within a few weeks, it took a few weeks because she had pain and hurt and rejection and lots of sin and issues in her life that were keeping her from really knowing. And it took a few weeks, but eventually she prayed and she gave her life to Jesus. And she was part of our church. And a few years later, she left and she went to another church and we blessed her. We just knew it was right because of where her husband was at. And her husband ended up getting saved in the other church. And they both are living for the Lord right now. And over the eight years, there's been times where she sent us an email or a card and saying, you know, I just don't know where my life would be if you guys wouldn't have moved in across the street. If you wouldn't have been across the street being the church next door. You need to remember this as we close. You may be the only church your neighbors ever see. And if that's true, then you have to consider where you are 
And this idea of being a laborer and praying so that God can use you to make a difference for eternity. Amen? Our vision is that over the next few months, you'll pick five people. You've got a, a out pamphlet right there, but you'll actually get something next week too to put five people on that you will commit to pray for until Easter. Five people. We're going to pray every day for 40 days from uh, Ash Wednesday to Easter. 40 days of prayer for five people and believing that every one of you will have one gospel conversation. We call it the 541 plan. Let me pray for us.